All right, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, whatever, wherever you are. Welcome back to the Didactic Mind Podcast, episode 82, Empire's End. A very warm welcome to all of my long-time listeners, a very warm welcome to my long-time readers. It's been a while, it's been a couple of weeks, and uh, the reason why I didn't do a podcast last week, of course, was because I was on my friend uh, JJ John C911's podcast. Uh, he was on, he, we did an episode of the JJ podcast together in which we talked about um, the various issues confronting us on a level, on various levels of faith, politics, and daily life. And we never even got around to some of the more interesting topics we really wanted to discuss. I mean, it was a very fascinating conversation overall, but we did, we barely even scratched the surface of, of some of the things we wanted to talk about, such as the ways in which the coof has affected us in the ways in which the uh, government reactions to said coof have caused enormous problems for all of us uh, in the ways in which our faith has sustained us through these difficult times. But hopefully we will get back together and uh, discuss some of these more esoteric subjects, or actually not even esoteric, more practical subjects, I should say, in more detail over the coming days. Uh, Today's podcast is likely to be a little bit shorter than usual, just because I have uh, some things I need to do later on. But I did want to take some time to discuss or talk about what we have witnessed today. Today is Sunday, August 15th. And as many of you, most of you are no doubt aware by now, the United States has pulled out of Afghanistan after a 20-year occupation, basically, and has essentially fled in ignominious retreat. The Taliban, which uh, was projected to conquer this, the country in oh, about three months, has managed to conquer pretty much the entire country in the space of a week. And this is remarkable, even for those of us who kind of saw it coming and expected this sort of um, destruction of the imperial outpost in Afghanistan. Even for those of us who expected it, the speed and uh, the completeness of America's failure is remarkable to behold. What you're watching is effectively the end of the American empire, the catastrophic and complete decline of American influence. And it's a complex story, and it's not one that I am certainly, certainly not one that I am fully qualified to relate or narrate. Because I'm not. I'm not a political scientist. I'm not a, uh, a pundit. I have no policy expertise whatsoever. I'm simply going to make a series of observations about how things have gone so completely wrong and how things got to this point and what are we going to do from here onwards. It's going to be extraordinarily difficult to do anything uh, for the American empire to retain any credibility at this point, and that's how it should be. But let's go back 20 years to that horrible day, 9-11, and let's think back to what things were like the day after 
On 9-11, a group of largely Saudi hijackers flew two planes into the Twin Towers and essentially killed 3,300 people. A third plane uh, crashed on the way to um, take out the White House, effectively. Uh, you, you know, United Flight 93. And uh, another plane crashed into the Pentagon and knocked a giant hole into that building. It was a genuinely horrifying, awful, terrible day. By the way, if you hear some strange sounds coming from uh, in this podcast, it's because the... I, I hesitate, I'm not even sure how to describe it, but basically the, the lesbian couple across the street from where I live are hosting some sort of party with uh, gays in their uh, apartment. And that's not, um, that's, that's not particularly enjoyable to watch, but, you know, it is what it is. And I like to keep my window open for ventilation and such. But what we're looking at in terms of the destruction of American influence is so rapid and so complete, as I said before, that we don't really have any parallels for it. We've never seen anything like this before. I mean, again, look back at what happened on 9-11. There was immense sympathy for what the American people were going through at the time. The whole world rallied around America saying, this is awful, this is appalling, this can never be allowed to happen again. That was all well and good. But look at how America then reacted to the single greatest attack on its people and its soil in its history. It reacted by clamping down civil liberties through the Patriot Act and by ramping up plans to attack Afghanistan. Well, why Afghanistan? Why that one country in particular? Why? Well, what made Afghanistan special? Because apparently the Taliban-controlled government in Afghanistan had sheltered Osama bin Laden, the man who masterminded the 9-11 hijackings. Okay, so the point was to go in, knock out the Taliban, destroy them, and bring bin Laden to justice. Okay, that's what America did. I mean, by December of 2001, um, it, as I recall, by yeah, by about December of that year, um, America had completely routed the Taliban, sent them fleeing into the hills, and had taken over the entire country, and set about uh, very speedily attempting to recreate a modern liberal democracy in that country. And that's really where all the mistakes started. Now, Ask yourself this, who are the Taliban? Where do they come from? The Taliban are effectively the remnants of a sect of Islamists that had been bedeviling that region of the world since the time of the British. That's not a joke. The Brits came in, conquered India in the 18th century, took over most of northern India and uh, used their very successful divide-and-conquer strategy to set Muslims and Hindus against each other, to set tribes and sects against each other. And it worked brilliantly. Uh, 
that is why the Indian governments of the time were subjugated so quickly, the Indian princedoms actually, the Indian kingdoms, fell so quickly to the British because they were disunited, they were weak. But in the process of doing all this, the British came across a force that they found extraordinarily difficult to defeat. And these were the ancestors of the modern Taliban. They were called Talibes. They were, um, they were hardcore Islamists who believed in going back to the roots of the scriptures, uh, of the Quran, the Hadith, the Tafsir, the Tahrik, and the Sirah the five major aspects of Islamic canon. You'll find this happening on and off throughout Islamic history. It always happens. They, a lot of people complain that Islam has never undergone a true reformation the way that Christianity has to get rid of some of the more egregiously stupid aspects of either the Roman Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church. That is not true. The reality is that Islam has undergone reformation after reformation after reformation, in which every single time the reformers have issued their version of Martin Luther's ancient rallying cry, sola scriptura, only from the book. Well, if you go back only to the books of Islam, what happens then? You end up with complete nutballs in charge. Why? Because that is what their books tell them to be, complete nutballs. That is what the Talibes were. They were complete effing nutballs. The British chased them off, chased them into the mountains, into the Himalayas, to get rid of their corrosive influence from, uh, from northern India. And they succeeded. They were able to chase them in to Afghanistan. It was in Afghanistan, however, that they got bogged down very, very badly. And the reason they got bogged down so badly is because Afghanistan as a country was extraordinarily difficult terrain. It was mountain terrain. It was very easy for opposing forces to hide. And it was very uh, fractured. It was a tribal state. It didn't really have any kind of coordinated, comprehensive government. It was all... There was nothing united about Afghanistan. So the usual strategies of divide and conquer didn't really work because they were already really divided. Afghanistan is a very tribal country. You have Pashtuns, Balochis, Tajiks, uh, Turkmens, and uh, God only knows how many other different tribes and sub-tribes up there. It's very easy in an environment like that for a bunch of effing nutbulls to disappear and blend in. That's exactly what happened. They festered there for 200 years. Their particular brand of Islam has never really gone away. Now, if the British couldn't defeat them, and if the, uh, if the, uh, later, you know, beyond them, if the Soviets couldn't defeat them, and before that, before all of that, if the Greeks under, or actually the Macedonians under Alexander the Great couldn't defeat them, what exactly makes you think that America could defeat them? Especially given that the American way of doing things involved setting up a secular liberal democracy in a country that is not secular, not liberal, and not democratic. How do you do it? America created for itself under the George W. Bush administration 
very Wilsonian ideal of going abroad in search of demons to slay. It didn't work when Wilson was in power. It really didn't work when George W. Bush was in power. The Wilsonian approach to spreading peace, love, and democracy is not a wise course of action. It is profoundly foolish. It is Wilsonian democratic idealism that led to World War II. If you look at the way that the Peace of Versailles was constructed, that's exactly what happened. The end of the Great War and the peace that resulted from it set up the stage for the Second World War almost immediately. And all of the commentators at the time who were astute enough to understand what the great powers had done, what the Entente had done at Versailles, understood that there was no way this would result in a long-term peace. It could never result in such a thing. Because a long-term peace would have required a stable German state. It would have required the ability of the Germans to accept that they were at fault, which they never accepted that they were, because in all honesty, they actually weren't at fault for World War I. It would have required a, an equitable peace, and it would have required an utterly defeated and crushed Germany. None of those things happened. In the same way, the conditions for imposing liberal democracy, secular liberal democracy, in Afghanistan were never met. If you want a secular liberal democracy, you need a country that rejects Islam, that is willing to embrace European white civilization and its ideals, and is willing to tolerate mob rule, which is what democracy is, effectively. America tried to make Afghanistan into another America, peopled by brown-skinned types instead of whites. Didn't work. And here we are 20 years later watching Chinooks taking off from the U.S. Embassy uh, desperately trying to flee enemy forces while deploying anti-missile flares while thousands upon thousands of civilians flee from the Taliban and people paint over their shop signs you know, for women's clothes and for books and for cosmetics because a bunch of 7th century barbarians are about to take over again. This is a catastrophic defeat for the United States, make no mistake about that. But it's not one that any of us, or any of us who are paying attention at least, uh, it, it didn't surprise us. I mean, people like me have been saying for years that this is what's going to happen, that these Syracuse expeditions are insanely dumb and should never have been permitted. The fall of Afghanistan was inevitable. It always was. It didn't matter who was in charge, whether it was George W. Bush, whether it was a oh, dumbass the light worker, whether it was Hillary Clinton, that if the Hilda bitch had been in charge, I mean, God help us all, because America would have been embroiled in another three massive wars, none of which were winnable, all of which would have required, would have dragged Russia in and uh, into the fray, and all of which would have resulted in massive catastrophic American defeats, every single one. In this case, the God Emperor, you know, blessed be his name, tried to get America out of the war 
tried to pull American troops out of Iraq, out of Afghanistan, bring them home. That could not be permitted. Why? Why is it that America could not withdraw from these quagmires? Why is it that every time America engages in one of these military misadventures, it always gets stuck? Why? A clue may lie in one of the very interesting comments left just today, in fact, by our good friend, long-time reader, long-time friend of the site, Lieutenant Colonel Tom Kratman, in which he pointed out that the U.S. military isn't merely incapable of admitting a mistake. It's more unwilling to admit its mistakes. And I think he's right. I think he, he, he wrote a very, very long and I think uh, rather insightful comment in which he pointed out that this is a tradition within the U.S. military. Admitting a mistake is something kind of beyond its capabilities. It's not, it's something within the institutional DNA of the U.S. military prevents it from doing the right thing and from saying, you know, from, from letting its officers, especially its flag-level officers, from holding up their hands and saying, yeah, we screwed up. Now, contrast this with the way that really, really effective, really professional militaries, really skilled militaries, I should say, not professional. This, I'm not saying the American military is unprofessional because that's not true. It's, a, it's the most professional military you can imagine. But truly skilled militaries that are really good at winning wars are run by intellectuals who, like, well, not intellectuals, nerds, actually. Intellectual is, in my view, kind of a four-letter word, especially by now. But if you look at the German army, if you look at the, uh, the Wehrmacht in World War II, the Wehrmacht at the time were largely considered to be the best infantry and mechanized fighting force on Earth, which they were for a spell. Why? Why is it that the, 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 the top-level marine divisions in World War II were only about at the level of a second-tier Wehrmacht division? Why? Part of the reason is because their officers went, through, the Wehrmacht's officers went through a training regimen that forced them to think outside of the box, that forced them to come up with innovative, unconventional solutions, and forced them to break rules and disobey orders in order to win scenarios. That sort of military training is extremely unusual. It originated with the Prussians back in the days um, following the battles of Jena and uh, Auerstedt, in which the Prussian, Emp well, the Prussian uh, military got its ass kicked by Napoleon's forces, essentially, uh, shattered completely, and had to rebuild itself from the ground up. They built themselves around a curriculum that focused on learning, on admitting mistakes, on moving past them, and on innovating, constantly innovating. Now, there are limitations to that kind of uh, way of thinking, which the Germans learned in truly appalling and catastrophic fashion on the Eastern Front. But it's effective. It does work. And it, it appears to me, and I'm not an insider in the military, I don't know if this is the truth, but it appears to me, looking from the outside in, this mindset does not exist within the U.S. military today. And it may well not have existed for decades. It appears as though the military there has grown incapable of admitting that it's gone down the wrong path multiple times. 
we keep seeing this. The F-35, as I have outlined time and time and time and time again, is a gigantic mistake. I mean, it is a mistake that will break America's military forces. But nobody wants to admit it. Nobody wants to admit that the U.S. military is a paper tiger. It's actually not just a paper tiger. It's a paper tiger that's been soaked in nail polish remover. It's so ineffective and so incapable of doing its job that anybody, pretty much, can come along and knock it out in pretty comprehensive fashion uh, as long as they're, you know, above the level of, let's say, well, the Iraqi army um, after Gulf War One. I. I mean, we're talking Gulf War Two level Iraqi army. If 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 you're if the American military is fighting against an opponent like that, it can win. But the moment it encounters real spirited, capable resistance, it seems to be utterly incapable of winning. Why? What are the lessons that America needs to learn from this? Well, first and foremost, of course, don't pursue wars you can't win. Second, to win, you need to know what winning looks like. And America never figured that out in Afghanistan, in Iraq, anywhere in the last 20 years. It's never been able to figure out what the conditions for victory look like. And it's never been able to articulate them. Because it keeps changing the goalposts. Because again, as Lieutenant Colonel Crapman pointed out, there seems to be a congenital unwillingness to admit failure. Now, anyone who's been listening to me or reading my work for a long time knows full well that I believe very strongly in admitting your mistakes and admitting your failures before you can move on. It's the fastest way to move on. It's the most effective way to move on. You admit you screwed up, you acknowledge where you went wrong, and then you try to fix your screw-ups. And the moment you do that, you're going to be in a much, much better position to learn and to adapt and to grow than if you didn't do it. Because you no longer have illusions holding you back. I'm not convinced the U.S. military has been able to do this for a very long time. Notice a couple of other things about the news out of Kabul today as well. The Russians are not evacuating their embassy. Why? Because the Russians aren't at war with the Taliban. Why? Because the Russians know damned well that the Taliban aren't interested in fighting them. They're only interested in reconquering their country. And yes, the Russians uh, are quite happy to see the Americans suffer yet another embarrassing, humiliating, massive defeat. No question. But there's no need for them to get involved. They weren't asked to get involved. They have no interest in getting involved. And most importantly, unlike the Americans, the Russians have learned from their past mistakes. The Soviets went into Afghanistan and tried to conquer it, and they failed completely. They lost thousands upon thousands of Russian boys to American-backed jihadis who eventually became the modern Taliban, by the way. Those brave uh, guerrillas that uh, uh, Rambo... Which, which one was it? Rambo 2? I think it was Rambo 2. Or maybe it was... I can't remember now. Um, it was one of the it was one of the Rambo movies, and I'm pretty sure it was Rambo three. Actually, yeah, it was Rambo three, uh, where 
like Rambo basically, John Rambo goes back into Afghanistan or goes into Afghanistan and at the end of the movie, the, the filmmakers praise the brave resistance fighters of Afghanistan for fighting back against Soviet invasion. Well, yeah, I mean, what do you expect? You know, when people invade your homeland and, and try to kill your people, of course you're going to fight back. That's by definition that's going to happen. Um, the Russians learned their lesson. They learned that you cannot break uh, Afghanistan without nuking it. And that's really the only way to solve a problem like Afghanistan, is the only way to break that kind of country is to wipe it off the face of the earth, is to adopt tactics and strategies that are so brutal, so horrible, so anti-human, so genocidal, and literally genocidal, that no civilized nation on earth, well, no Western civilized nation on earth, can contemplate them. And thank God for that. And I mean that in all sincerity. Thank God for that. Because the last thing we would want is to see, you know, absolute scorched earth tactics involving Mongolian levels, you know, Genghis Khan levels of slaughter and murder and rape and genocide inflicted upon people. That's not what we want to see. If that happens, then it won't be America doing it. And thank God for that. I, again, in all sincerity, I truly mean that. It's a very, very good thing that America is not capable of doing these things. Because if it did, it wouldn't be America anymore. There is still, I believe, a real core of human decency within America even today. That no amount of insanity, no amount of barbarity, no amount of failure will really truly break. Why? Because America is, at its core, a white European nation that still exists, even now, as that nation, despite all of the burdens and stresses placed upon it. We'll see how long that lasts. But looking at the longer-term consequences of what's going to happen, well, today was unquestionably a massive defeat. No, the, the Biden administration can try to cover it up as much as it wants, but it was a, a catastrophic, colossal defeat. There's no getting past that. There's no dealing or there's no moving beyond the fact that America has suffered the single greatest blow to its prestige and power since the fall of Saigon in 1975. That's how bad it is. Can America recover from it? No, not with a fake president at its helm. And in some ways, it's good that this happened under Biden because it's shown for all the world to see just how weak America actually is. Biden tried to blame this on the God Emperor. Now, this is one of the first, this is one of the very few times you're ever going to hear me say this. I actually agree with the fake president in pulling out American troops. They never should have been there in the first place. They should all have been removed years ago, decade, over a decade ago, probably 15, maybe 18 years ago. Go in, wipe out the Taliban, get the hell out, and let the, uh, the Indians and the Pakistanis and the Chinese and the Russians deal with the results. You came, you saw, you conquered, you wiped out. You know, Ideally, America should have done DNA testing to figure out who was directly responsible, who were the closest relatives to the people within... Bin Laden's inner circle, slaughtered them, you know, killed them all, executed them, gotten out, and then said, okay, we're done. 
we're not going to stick around. We're not going to do nation building. We're just, you know, we're here to kill the people who killed us. And that's it. Job done. Leave. That's not what they did. Under the Bush administration, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and the Biden administration, four successive, well, three successive legitimate U.S. presidents, and I'm not convinced about Obama's second term at all, um, and one fake administration, we have seen repeated failure, and we have seen quagmire and death and destruction that never really went anywhere. Now it's over. It's done. America is out. If America goes back in again, well, that's going to be another series of disasters. It's going to end even worse than the first time around. But it's a good thing that this happened under Biden. Number one, because he owns it. I mean, as much as he tries to pretend that he doesn't, he owns it. More importantly, the neo-clowns behind him who pulled the strings own it. No one in his right mind can look at somebody like the fake president and think, that that guy is actually in charge of the country. He's not in charge of anything. It's the puppet masters behind him pulling the strings who have failed. The neo-clown project is now thoroughly discredited. And this is a good thing. This is a wonderful thing. Why? Because the neo-clowns have been pushing extremely hard for the better part of 15 years to invade Syria and Iran and attack Russia. I can't think of a more catastrophically dumb series of ideas than that. I mean, it's actually, it, I, I can't conceive of anything more stupid, more foolish than attacking Russia via wars in Iran and Syria. The Russians are a tough, battle-hardened, capable military right now. They are probably the best land warfare fighting force on Earth. They can beat any army on their own soil. That, you know, they are the best at doing what they do because they don't adopt stupid ideas and stupid tactics and stupid, uh, cultural Marxist policies designed to weaken them. What about China? Uh, where does China fit into all this? Well, there's no doubt in my mind that China is agitating hard for the withdrawal of U.S. military influence and power in the region, and this plays right into China's hands. No doubt about that. There's a reason why the Chinese were the first to reach out to the Taliban and welcome them in as kind of the legitimate government of Afghanistan. They're not legitimate exactly, but they're just, you know, they've, they've taken over, they've conquered, so that gives them legitimacy. They weren't voted in by the people, they just, they're the strong horse right now, so the tribal elders of Afghanistan uh, support them. They are the strong group, so good for them. What about Russian interests? The Russians seem to be quite happy to stay out of this whole thing and generally just watch the U.S. in decline and retreat. But this brings us back to what President Putin said some years ago, in which he asked rhetorically, and a techie dude over on my site pointed this out, uh, and quite rightly so, as he said, he... Putin said to the entire world, do you, do you realize now what you've done? Now, he was saying this in the context, I think he was saying it in the context of something else. It was either the uh, destruction of Libya, um, you know, basically the U.S., you know, caused the overthrow of uh, Gaddafi and 
Gaddafi died uh, in horrible ways and Putin basically literally said to people, do you, do you realize now what you've done? Because the result of that invasion was nothing less than the reestablishment of open-air slave markets in Tripoli. That's what's happening. I mean, that's what happens when you let radical Islamists into power. You get slave markets and child abuse and boy play, you know, bachabazi. That's literally what it means. Uh, grown men sexually molesting boys in public and female genital mutilation, uh, rape and beating and stoning of women, homosexuals being thrown off tower blocks or buried under brick walls or uh, or lit on fire and, and um, burned alive or stoned to death. That's what you get when you let radical Islamists into power. That's what you get when you allow Islam to survive as a faith, as a creed. This is what happens. And that's what you get when you destabilize a country so much that you let the strong horse that is Islam into the stable. That's what happens. It's not difficult to figure this out for anybody other than a neo-clown or a Pentagon planner. That much is very clear. They don't learn from history. They don't learn their lessons. So what can we as men take away from this? What can we as part of the Christian right take away from this? How are we to conduct ourselves? Well, the first thing to understand is this is but the beginning of a very severe time of testing. Well, it's not even the beginning. We're, in, we're, we're well into uh, the time of testing, and I've been talking about this for a couple of years now. We are, we are under pressure. We are being tested in ways that will push us beyond what we consider to be our breaking points. It's going to be really bad over the next few years, genuinely. I mean, it's going to be so bad that we can't even imagine it right now. There is going to be persecution and brutality and horror to come in ways that we don't fully recognize or understand, and we can't until it happens. That's the first thing to understand. The second thing to understand is that earthly governments are going to fall faster than we can imagine. The Soviet Union fell two years after uh, they pulled their troops out of Afghanistan. Well, no, not, not that long. Sorry, I'm wrong about that. Uh, they, the Soviet Union fell a few years after they pulled everybody out of Afghanistan. So, you know, I think uh, 1991, they, they, the Soviet Union basically collapsed. And Afghanistan itself collapsed. The, the Afghan government collapsed. Uh, shortly thereafter because the new Russian government just could not support them financially. Uh, but they managed to stay fighting, you know, in power for five years after the Soviets pulled out of Afghanistan. They, you know, they, they survived for a good long time. I mean, if you look at the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, invasion of Afghanistan, when did it end? So, Soviet-Afghan war, it lasted until February 15th, 1989, two years later. Okay, yeah, so there was a 10-year war. Uh, the Soviets pulled out February of 1989. They f the Soviet government fell in December 1991, December 25th, basically Christmas Day, uh, or 26th, I forget, uh, 1991. So yeah, two and a half years. Okay, fine. So that was how quickly the Soviet Union fell, you know, weakened from its war, uh, destroyed financially, 
incapable of reforming itself, pursuing, you know, insane military projects, spending 50% of their GNP on weapon systems and, and defense projects, incapable of generating any kind of prosperity for its people. That, that should sound familiar. And yet the Soviet Union was internally a much stronger empire than the United States is today. The Soviet Union was a, an internally consistent, capable empire. It wasn't riven by the kinds of ethnic and societal and cultural divisions that America has to deal with today, that most of the West has to deal with today. It didn't have the same problems at the same scale. So what happens now? Well, I've been arguing for some time that um, America's next election, 2024, is probably going to be its last. And I suspect that this is going to bear out the truth of that statement. I suspect whatever happens in 24, whoever runs, it's not going to end well for America's constitutional system. That constitution was written specifically for a white European nation. That white European nation has been scattered and broken. It still exists in pockets, and actually there's a big, huge landmass of, of descendants of white Europeans who live within the United States, what we call the Trump land, effectively. But it's not, it's, it's weak, it's scattered, it's, it's not, it doesn't have strong population centers the way that what was once known as the Clinton Archipelago does. So what we're looking at is a very scattered and divided population of descendants of whites of the original nation which has been broken and, and torn apart and it is being torn apart ever more what we can expect in 2024 is probably a reckoning vox day has been arguing you know our beloved and dreaded supreme dark lord vox day peace be unto him has been arguing for many years that 2033 is the likely fall of the U.S. government, of the U.S. constitutional system, of the American empire, the likely cessation of the United States as a viable political entity. I'd say based on this, we're probably looking at 2025, four years from now. That's it. That's all America has left. What comes after that? I don't know. Nobody knows. All we know is that the the fallout is going to be absolutely catastrophic. I mean, the Chinese think that they can weather the storm. They can't. Their economy is more tied into the United States than the United States is to China. They depend more on America for economic power and sustenance than America depends on China. If America, when America falls, China will be destroyed. And China has between five and 17 different nations within it. It's a, a Han-dominated empire. That's the truth of it. China is a Han-dominated empire ruling over a fractured, fragmented group of ethnic ethnicities and tribes of other nations. That is going to shatter very quickly. What about Russia? Well, the Russians have been through a lot worse, but they're going to go through hell again very soon. And they know it. And that's why Putin is preparing his country to deal with it. That's why he's rearming his country rapidly with weapons that can meet and beat the best that the West has to offer. With the exception of the F-22, I don't believe that anybody's 
ever come up with a weapon as good as the F-22. But the Russians are getting awful close. This is going to be a time of testing for us all. And we have to keep that in mind. We have to understand what is in store for us. And we have to realize that what comes next is going to test us and push us hard as Christians, as nationalists, as men, as fathers, as husbands, as sons. And we have to be ready for it. Do not put your faith in governments. Do not put your faith in men. Do not expect that people in power have the first bloody clue what they're doing because they plainly don't. We have just seen in decisive and catastrophic fashion how clueless the people in power really are. We have seen how hopeless a bunch of overeducated socialist Jews are when trying to figure out how to solve an, unsoluble, an insoluble problem like Afghanistan. Keep your faith where it belongs. Get ready for a fight. And be ready to defend yourselves if necessary. Because that's what it's going to come down to very soon. We've got four years maximum. And I'm willing to bet that it's going to be a hell of a lot less than that before America shatters as a country. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'll happily admit it. Right? I'm happily going to admit that I'm wrong. But that's all we've got. So be ready. Guard your hearts. Prepare for what's coming. Because it's going to be very, very ugly. Gentlemen, I'm going to have to wrap it up there. This has been the Didactic Mind podcast, and I know I've got about another 15, 20 minutes to go, but I just have to get going and do something else. Uh, hopefully, next week's episode will be a little bit longer, and hopefully I'll have this up in reasonably short order. But uh, keep yourselves safe out there. Watch out for yourselves. Watch out for each other. Uh, live in accordance with the wishes of the Lord and the laws, and pray for guidance, for wisdom, for strength, because you're going to need it. It's going to be a very nasty, very severe set of tribulations to come, and we need to be ready for it. This has been Didactic Mind, episode 82, Empire's End. And this is Didact, signing off.